he's back. The man behind the mask. Well, I'm not wearing a mask today, but I am back. On the film file. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. And as I said at the beginning, I'm back. Hey, Andy, I'm back. Welcome back. It was so weird last week. It was it weird was listening really to it, weird. to be honest. It's, it's basically, you know, I'd scripted everything last week. Whereas I've usually got like some scripted notes, but I'd go off tangents a lot. Last week, because I was aware I had no one to jump in and interject whenever I'd go off on a tangent, I had to make sure I stuck to the script. And so literally everything was... Um, I've got to keep that. I, I was. I'm aware that I can go off on rants every now and then, <laughs> so I had to play carefully to not go on a rant because you are the one who stops me from I'm going completely keeper. off on a tangent. Uh, and and as you can tell, with the amount of reviews that I've crammed in last week, yeah, you gave me free reign, mate. <laughs> yeah, I that's certainly going, did. That's going to happen. <laughs> it was. It was really weird listening to it because I, uh, for those who, who might not have tuned in last week, um, I went away. But we recorded some bits before I went. Uh, so Andy went solo on the show. And I, I listened to the show as as a listener. And it was just, I kept going, oh, I'm there. No, I'm not, because I'm here. And uh, <laughs> Andy's on one. He needs reining in. He needs reining in. Where is anybody to rein him in? And it's very no weird. There. It's, it, it's yeah, we're so used to, I mean, we're 85 episodes in now. And we're so used to this, like, to and fro in that even the reviews, when you've not seen something or I've not seen something, we interject on each other to discuss, yeah. like, oh, well, you know, that, that sounds interesting. Da, 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 da. But without that, it meant that the reviews went from being, like, you know, seven minutes for a review down to, like, only four minutes because there's no one to bounce mm-hmm. things off. And even the news items, it flooded through quite fast because there was no other opinions. And that's one thing that we like, even though we do share a lot of opinions, we love the times when we disagree. And we can put something else at a different viewpoint. And that's what was missing last week. And that's why the film file, we we want it to be a chat between two mates. And we want it to be that you're sat there listening to it at home, hearing two of your mates bantering about things. And that's the energy that we want it to bring. And last week, it lacked that energy. So I apologize to anyone for the lack <laughs> of energy. But, you know, we have to have holidays every now and then. I and had to go point, away. I, some, I went away. At some point, um, it's going to be me going away, and Lee's yeah. going to have to solo one, which will be an interesting one as well. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> as Andy said right at the beginning, there are notes and script. Um, you know, I don't really have notes and script. <laughs> yeah. I wing it you're, every week. You're lucky if you have bullet points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm lucky if I've got the computer on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, that would be an interesting, and I dread the day that we do that. But it will happen at some point when Andy can't make it, and that's... I, I was trying to work it out. I don't know if I've missed any of the shows. I don't think I have. But at there least we've got... A, there was a couple in the early days because there was oh, a few right, that yeah, only me and Scott did. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's going to we, we need Scott. We need Scott to get himself a laptop or something so he can join us back on these so that that way when one of us is away, <laughs> he can join us back. And to join us every now and then just for that extra, extra element. And we have talked, haven't we, about having more guests because you, uh, uh, you brought in Adam the other week. Um, yeah, to talk about his film, and that was cool. And we've had guests a, a, along the right, along, and we've had guests along the way. So it, it's always a, we're always open to 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 more guests, and we've been having a little chat about that, about who we could get on the other week. So, but I am back, and we have 
quite a full show to say that I'm back on after a week of relaxing to suddenly dive into the deep end. On today's show, we will be reviewing Candyman. I'm also going to be reviewing The Vault, which landed on Amazon. We'll be doing our deep dive this week into Cameron Crowe's rock and roll comedy drama, Almost Famous. We'll be taking a look at What If. We'll be giving you, as ever, our neat things. But before any of that, here comes the item known only as the news. So we're back with the news and I'm here to bounce things off. Andy, tell us about this week's box office because there's a bit of record breaking going off. Not necessarily in the terms of the box office, but the way those box office numbers have come to be. Yeah, so Candyman, which opened this past weekend internationally, it was predicted in the US to do a $15 million opening weekend, but it's instead smashed that and gone past $22 million, which for a film that only cost $25 million to make is a, a pretty successful weekend. Um, in addition, it's taken just over $5 million from international markets, so it's already passed the budget of $25 million, and it's well and truly on its way to profit, as we kind of expected with the low-budget horror films. They seem to be the ones that are thriving in this industry at this point in time. And we talked about that. We talked about the fact that lower budgets at this particular time are going to have much better box office revenue yeah i mean they're not they're not pulling in like the hundreds of millions but because they've got such lower budgets it means that it's easier for them to break even go into profit and films like you know we we, we previously spoke about a quiet place too and how well that performed and we'll see it with future horrors uh, but the important news that came on the back of this is that near de costa's film because it is near de costa's film and we it will is. be touching on that later on in our review it became the second highest opening weekend for the film directed by a black woman. The first place is held by Ava DuVernay's Wrinkle in Time, which grossed $33 million in its opening weekend. So it's, it's a good good sign. It's a, it's a good measure. But it still shows that if this is the second highest opening weekend for a film directed by a black woman, it shows the lack of black women directors that there's been in the industry. And there's still, I think there's still yeah. a huge way to go. But it's great to see news like this breaking. And as we know, she's directing the Captain Marvel sequel, uh, Marvel. So, you know, the the world's kind of kind of a, a, a lobster right now. And I know I said lobster because I can. <laughs> One thing that has provided amusement to me over the past year and a half, two years, was Sony's branding of the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. As you know, I love to say how how Sony are spunking up the screen a lot. Uh, sadly, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. They've decided that finally they've realized and recognized that SPUMC is being taken out of context. They must have been they must have been listening to me on the show mocking it constantly. Instead, they've rebranded it. Uh, all their Spider-Man related projects will be known simply as SSU, Sony's Spider-Man Universe, with Venom that let there be carnage being the first film to sport the new banner when it arrives. I'm kind of upset at that. I can't do anything with you. <laughs> no, I think the writing was on the wall and probably on a bathroom wall. Something was on the wall with Spunk. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Kids, if you're listening uh, with your parents in the car, don't ask your parents. That bit makes it into the podcast, not in the radio version. <laughs> <laughs> 
with regards to Venom Let There Be Carnage, there's speculation around the arrival date of it, and there's buzz that it might move again from the mid-October release date to January the 21st, 2022, which is was kind of backed up this past week at CinemaCon, when throughout Sony's presentation, there was no mention or presence of anything to do with Venom. And it's their next big film, so it should have been top of the agenda. Mm. Did they also mention Mobius? Because that's gone very quiet as well. I think that Mobius has gone completely quiet until they know for definite what's going to be happening with Venom. Because if Venom does move to January next year, Mobius is going to be later in the year or a straight to streaming at some point. Um, Underperforming box office has been cited as a reason for the speculation around Venom's release date. But I can't help think it's more uncertainty on the quality of the product that Sony has Sony worried. There's a packed month of cinema releases in October, and it it looks more likely that they're worrying that their film, which is a sequel to a film that did well at the, on the box office, but had a huge wave of negative reactions to. Even people who flocked to go and see it, excited, came away going, uh, it was okay. And I think that they're worried that it's not going to draw enough people in if there's films like Halloween out at the same time or Bond is still running, and it'll just sink. And when you look at the date that they're currently saying, January the 21st, traditionally, when a big heavy hitter film suddenly shifts to the dead month of January, a time when it's usually the Oscar friendlies and the BAFTA friendly films, the lower key first, it suggests that they want it to sink. Yeah, it's, it is the, uh, the twilight of, uh, of movie releases that particular period. It's like saying that some films have actually found their feet at that time of the year because... There's not a lot of competition. Also, we are still living in strange days and you never know. January might be now a hot period. The one type of film that tends to do well in late January is usually the family kind of films. Any family, like any Disney animations or things like that, because after Christmas, there's usually no family material comes out. So to drop something family related towards the end of January, it gives audiences a chance to bring the kids to come and see things at the weekend. Venom's not going to be family friendly. And it's also the time for Oscar nominees, isn't it? So if you've missed yeah. an Oscar nominee, that's when you... you Unless you they it. think it's so good that they think it's going to get tipped for Oscars. I know we've got some negativity towards it, and that's just based on what we've seen. But you never know. It might turn out to be a good film. Ever the optimist. But there's nothing confirmed at this point in time, but no doubts. If the release date does change, we will report it here. Um, The No Way Home trailer dropped last week, which I spoke about briefly on the show because it literally dropped before I was doing the mop-ups of um, me reviews and news. Have you had a chance to see it? I have, yes. Now, there was a bit of a tale behind it because it got leaked out. So Sony had to act fast and Marvel, of course, yeah. uh, because there was a leaked version, which they they managed to mop up and, and pull very quickly off the, off the interweb. And uh, yes, I saw it. And I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to think about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I was, I've only seen it the once, and I normally have to take these things in a couple of times. It was very plot heavy, almost yes. giving away the entire setup. So you almost assume that you've seen the the highlights of uh, Act One, uh, and we know that he's going into battle. And of course, it'd it be Marvel. There's always 
some sleights of hand, isn't there, with with a lot of their trailers? There are scenes that appear in in their trailers which don't appear in the movie to to throw fans off. But it, it gave an inkling as to what to expect, and it seems to, from from the word around the web, have uh, have generated that interest in this movie in a way that probably the previous ones didn't. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the, the trailer has broken viewing records. It managed to get 355 million views in its first 24 hours. Blimey, Charlie. Which, yes, which uh, surpasses the previous top spot, which was Avengers Endgame with 289 million. And that's obviously given Sony some confidence in that film, sticking its release date in December, because December is always a big month for films. There was concern that maybe No Way Home might get lost in the sea of other films, but I don't think they've got anything to worry about at this point in time. People are excited about this film. The buzz online has been packed with people just saying, wow, that looks great. Oh, speculation as to which version of Peter the Doc Ock is saying hello, Peter, to. Everything has got people starting to dissect the trailer and work out their own fan theories, as they do. And thankfully, most people now have got to the stage of going, oh, I'm dissecting it. I think it's this, but I may be wrong. There's no one certain, although I have seen a few people saying that they think Mephisto's behind it all along. And I I think we're never going to get (laughs) out of this Mephisto trap. (laughs) Mephisto is just going to be the the drawback fall fall to person each time. Yeah, I've seen the trailer a couple of times so far. And I've noticed a few different things in it. But like you say, there's a lot of misdirection that Marvel do in their trailers. So I'm not ta- I'm not taking everything at face value of the trailer, but I'm excited now for this film. And we've spoken before how I've not been that enamoured with this new interpretation of Spider-Man. I think Tom Holland's great, but he's too much of an Iron Man than a Spider-Man. Yeah. And it's not quite tapped into it. But this looks a lot closer to what I want from a Spidey film. So what we did get from it is it follows the fallout of Far From Home, uh, in which uh, Peter's identity was leaked by the great J.K. Simmons returning as J. Jonah Jameson, and it was framed for the death of Mysterio. And the effect this has had now his identity is public, so much so that seemingly Peter seeks out the help of uh, Doctor Strange to ask him to make everyone forget, which is straight out of... um, out of the comics, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's some people online who've said like, oh, but it was Mephisto who changed everything before Brand New Day. It's like, eh, you stopped reading at that point, didn't you? Because you didn't uh, continue on and find the full story. What? It was Doctor Strange, Reed Richards, who uh, combined together to work out a spell in order to wipe everyone's memories. Uh, I don't remember that because you stopped reading the comics. So stop pretending you're a comic book reader. <laughs> yes, Doctor Strange was the person who was responsible for the spell to wipe everyone's memory after the events of Civil War. It, I, I was pleased that they were keeping with that element. Yeah, that's, I think that's why a lot of people are saying Mephisto is behind everything because they just remember reading about it on Wikipedia and not reading the next article. Yeah. There's too many. There's too many Wikipedia comic book readers out there these days. I was having a discussion about this last night at work with someone and just saying there's people who think that they know everything about comics and they've never read one in their life because they read Wikipedia. So what oh. we do know is that, it, <laughs> and we know this from the casting that, well, Dr. Octopus is back from the Sam Raimi yeah. movies, as is the Pumpkin Bomb. So we can assume the Green Goblin is back. And also there was a, a lightning bolt, which we know that Electro is back. So it does kind of tie into both the Raimi and the Andrew Garfield period of, of Spider-Man. So intrigued. Just on the side note of that, have you seen the animated 
trailer version which uses the old uh 1980s spider-man cartoon no <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> they they take things out of the animated spider-man the classic animated spider-man cartoon and and someone's cut it to the uh to the soundtrack of that and it is it's it's a labor of love clearly and it's very very good you can find that online that is getting tracked down like after that we've recorded you'll today i think you'll, trust me you'll thank me Speak, sticking with Sony, and it is worth noting that Sony, out of all the distributors, are committed to a theatrical release. They don't have their own streaming service, as we've mentioned before. They've done deals with Netflix and Sky and, and Disney uh, for various content drops. But their main films, they still want to go on the big screen. As Sony's co-president of Motion Pictures, Josh Greenstein, said, at the core of Sony's movie strategy is a commitment to preserving, protecting the exclusive theatrical windows. Debuting movies simultaneously in theatres and in the home is devastating to our collective business. Over the last 19 months, there's been a lot of doom and gloom. Without dismissing very real challenges, we at Sony take the long-term view of the business. We've been here before when a new content experience emerges, but we know movie theatres and the theatrical experience will triumph. And that's heartening to hear that, you know, distributors and produ production companies of movies, some of them still want the content to make it to the cinema. They still understand the importance of the cinema experience and they understand the importance of it financially as well. Because that's what we've hammered home a few yeah, times. You're right. Is that, yes, we like streaming as well. And whilst we love the cinema experience and we'll say that nothing can compare to it, our biggest concern is that the financials of streaming will not justify huge budgeted films. And, and we've seen that. We've seen the evidence of that now. Yep. Yeah. Uh, other distributors, even Warners, who made the choice this year to split with HBO releases, seems to be moving back to a 45-day window from 2022 onwards. So everyone is starting to acknowledge that cinemas are important. We just need the content to keep coming and stop holding them off. Like we've said, take a loss on some of your films just to get the momentum going. And talking of which, have you seen the bit about Patty Jenkins? Yes, I have seen that bit. Uh, Patty Jenkins has spoken out about day and date releases. In her words, it was the best choice in a bad bun in a bunch of bad choices at the moment. It was detrimental to the movie. I knew that could have happened. I don't think it plays the same on streaming ever. I'm not a fan of day and date, and I hope to avoid it forever. I like working with Netflix for television. I wouldn't make a movie there or for any streaming service with those terms. So she's quite adamant that the reason why Wonder Woman 84 got a low reception box office wise, but also probably a lackluster reception watching at home is that without the cinema experience, it lacked something. She was, wasn't making a film for the small screen. She was making something to be enjoyed on the big scale. I have to agree. I wasn't a huge fan of, uh, of 84, but I think I would have had a better experience of it if i'd seen it in a, on a big screen yeah it was a visual spectacle film and a film that we've said it before that there's films that you can love on the big screen avatar is my go-to one that i've only ever seen it on the big screen and i've loved it the four times that i've seen it on the cinema i refuse to watch it at home because i saw too many people who loved it at the cinema watch it at home where you can see all the flaws and it fell apart for them Mm -hmm. So some films are cinematic spectacles and you have to accept them as that. Absolutely. What else? Well, I... So we switch over to Marvel. <clears throat> yeah, let's switch over to the uh, other up and coming <laughs> comic book movie company. 
<laughs> yeah, they're, they're struggling, but they'll get there eventually. There are only 24 films in. I think they'll get there in the yeah, end. Yeah, uh, Over at Marvel, Letitia Wright was briefly hospitalised this week following an incident on the set of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, the extent of her injury wasn't reported, but it apparently involved a stunt rigging go- incident going wrong. The incident is not expected to delay production on the film, which sees Wright resume her role as Shuri. And we still don't know the full details of this film. We only know that Atlantis is in it, Namor's going to be in it, Wakanda's in it. But we, we just keep getting casting drops. They're building it, they're filming it at the moment, and we still don't have a lot of details to go on. And I like this. Yes, because it draws anticipation. It pulls on our collective need to know, and we're all in the same boat. There's something about being in a mystery together that, yes, it's going to be rife with speculation, but yeah. that's going to happen anyway. But just the need to know, I think it's I think it's great. I'm glad they're not revealing it. You and I have talked about our own sort of theories as to where it could go, and they are just simply, you know, ideas of what we think might happen, but, you know, it's not in our hands, and we're waiting to see. Talking of Marvel, I had a, a chat with uh, a friend of mine who works in the industry in Hollywood over the last week. And this was before the reviews landed, but he was saying that Shang-Chi was, uh, was, had a really good word. And this was only around the industry before it had been seen. Um, that he was getting real positive feedback amongst industry types. And then, of course, the uh, reviews have landed and they've all been extremely positive. And I yeah. can't believe that opens next week. Yeah, I mean, it's polling well. Uh, they're expecting big things from it. And maybe Dis- Bob Chapek's interesting experiment of not releasing it on streaming will pay off and show that they should never do joint releases on Marvel films ever again. Mm. Anya Taylor-Joy is always a joy to watch on screen. Oh, we'll see what you did there. She's teaming up with Robert. I mean, it was the most obvious pun ever. And I feel really <laughs> embarrassed and dis- disappointed with myself for saying it. But she's teaming up with Robert Eggers again for his next project, Nosferatu, which is a remake of the iconic 1922 silent horror, which was loosely based on Dracula. Which has already been remade. Herna Verzog did a version with Klaus Kinski in the role and the very beautiful Isabella Arjani in it. Uh, and was was very good. It was uh, um, not a shot for shot, but it really captured the the flavour of, of uh, uh, the Manru one. It was uh, it was it was wasn't bad. But I can't believe it. I thought it was much later in the, than the seventies. I, I thought for some reason it was early eighties. But that's wow. a sign of getting old. That's yeah, a, it is. Everything just blurs into one. Taylor Joy broke broke out on the scene via Eggers's two thousand and fifteen film The Bitch. And it isn't known what role she's going to play in the new film, nor how faithful it will play to the original. But the project is apparently one that Eggers has been working on for quite some time. So I, I, I do like Eggers's style, and I think that he could really... Do, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually makes it as a shot-for-shot remake in like a 4-3 ratio with a scratchy <laughs> black-and-white um, film stock. Because, hey, we've seen, we've seen his other films. We know how he approaches stuff. He will keep it authentic. I'm excited. I'm interested. And I'm more curious now to see who he's going to cast in the role as the grotesque Nosferatu. Yes. I've got a bit of news. What have you got for us? So we talked about this when it landed on Netflix. Uh, and I'm going with Net last year. And I know my memory is fading fast. <laughs> but Old Guard did very, very well with Chalice Theron. And it was based on the Greg Rooker comic, which he also scripted. Now there has... Been plenty of talk of a sequel, but it looks like it's definitely happening. Old Guard 2 has signed up Victoria Mahoney 
to direct the sequel. Uh, she was the she was the second director on Rise of Skywalker, I believe. Oh yeah, she was second unit, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's got uh, she's got uh, directing gills that she can bring to um, an interesting film. I liked it. I thought it was nearly there. It was a great concept, mm-hmm. uh, good script. I thought the direction felt very TV movie esque. So I hope yeah. she can um, she can broaden it out a little bit. And also, my other bit of news is that uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr. and R. M. Pierre are to lead Barry Jenkins' Lion King prequel. I mean, I'm surprised that they're doing a Lion King prequel. <laughs> but it, isn't that just a fascination? They, they don't really want to do sequels to The Lion King because they tried that with animated form and they just weren't that good. So let's let's go back and do something fresh and uh, not really that original because it'll just be it'll just be The Lion King with a different skin on. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to some more exciting news. And uh, Swedish filmmaker Ninja Thyberg is signed to write and direct a remake of The Witches of Eastwick. Okay, yeah, I did see this land over the last couple of days. Um, it's open for interpretation as a as a, yes. a novel and a film. It, it is, it is a, as a movie, clearly an, a very 80s influence film. It's at the time it was made, so it's bound to be. So it will be interesting to see what you can do in the current world climate that we're in and see if we can do anything... You know, the the idea of any remake is what can you bring to it that says something about the world that we live in now? Well, the manner in which George Miller adapted the book back in 1987 with, you know, the great cast of Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer, he, he discarded some elements of the book and rather than focusing on the horror aspects, he made it, he made it quite entertaining and engaging at times and more open and accessible i'd be interested if this new adaptation is going to go the darker approach and be something different i'm hoping it's going to be an adaptation of the book rather than an adaptation of the film because the film rewatched it about a year and a half ago and it still stands up well it doesn't need a remake necessarily but the book it's one of those that the, the original material has so much extra in there that they could really go to town with a whole new adaptation and make it stand on its own two scurry feet. Uh, For those who don't know the story, it's a book about three single women who have their wishes granted when a mysterious and flamboyant man arrives in their small small community uh, who may or may not be the devil. Yes, that's the one. (laughs) Um, Matrix 4, I've noticed, has got a, a title at last, The Matrix Resurrections. At the CinemaCon, they showed some exclusive footage to the attendees there, um, some rough scenes and cuts and buzz reel, which no trailer has made it out into the open world yet, but we're all hotly anticipating something dropping pretty soon. I'm, I'm a fan of all three Matrix films. When we spoke about The Matrix many, many months ago, I praised the sequels, even though I know why people don't like them. I can understand people who, t- who turned away from them, but I loved them. And I went on to play the online video game, and I am so looking forward to seeing this film pick up the story threads that were left at the end of that online video game and take them forwards. So I'm buzzed for The Matrix. I just can't believe that it's apparently supposed to be out at the end of this year. I know. We've not seen anything yet. I'm looking forward to it. I'm the other side of the fence. The sequels tainted the original for me in such a way that it's got to do a lot of heavy lifting to win me back. Yeah. But not get bogged down in its own mythos, which which I think it, it eventually did, that it became so instrumental in, in creating this world that it forgot about telling a great story. 
There's been one release date shuffle of note, which Downton Abbey, which was originally planned to come out just before Christmas, has now set a release date of March the 18th next year. And it's got a new title. It's Downton Abbey, A New Era. Oh, I thought it was going to be The Revenge. Downton now, that Abbey. would have been exciting. Uh, I've never been a fan of Downton Abbey. I've no. never really got to it, but it's a, I know the huge following that it's got. Uh, in the film, the Crawley family are making preparations for an overseas journey. Regulars Maggie Smith, Hugh Bonneville, Michelle Dockery, Elizabeth McGovern and Laura Carmichael will be joined by the likes of Hugh Dancy, Laura Haddock, Natalie Bay and Dominic West. So basically anyone who's British is going to be <laughs> part of the Downton franchise sometime down the line. The fact that it's calling it Downton Abbey A New Era suggests that this is kind of a handover of the franchise. Yeah, I. you know what? I'm, I'm like you. I never got it. I did try it. I thought, you know, it was such a cultural significant series when it came out that I, I thought I'd better watch it because, I you know, I, I can't talk about it and discuss it if I've never seen it. And it wasn't for me, clearly, yeah. but it had a huge audience, an, an international audience as well. It did it remarkably well in, in the US. It was a big, but it even got referenced in Iron Man 3. Where do you think that all English people live in big mansions and yeah. um, have servants? Yeah. <laughs> well, half of, half of that's true. I, I'm speaking for myself. Of course. Um, Jeeves, uh, another coffee, please. I don't know where they get that from. But I think the big screen is a great way to take it because it was an expensive series. Yeah. And to take it onto the big screen because there is such a market for these films. And, you know, we, we talk about the more geeky stuff on this. There are, are a, an age group out there that it appeals to absolutely perfectly. And everybody with cinema needs to get what they enjoy. It's a, it's a broad yeah. church. We've talked about it before and everybody needs to have their place in it. And so I, I'm i happy that Downton Abbey is out there. I won't be seeing it. I have no interest in it, but there are people who appreciate it. And for them, this is an important piece of news. I mean, saying that there's films out there for everyone nicely leads into um, the next one, which is NASCAR. The skilled <laughs> racing art of taking a left turn for a few hours is to be the focus of a new film from Will Smith's Westbrook Studios. They've partnered with Chain, Chain Smokers Kick the Habit Productions and NASCAR themselves. Smith is just going to produce. He's not going to star in it. He has no plans to even pop up because the film will focus on Lila, an ambitious sports agent who loses her biggest clients just before the start of the season and takes a chance on a rebellious female dirt track driver, 17-year-old Piper Kite. The film is titled Clean Air and is a rom-com, which is written by Alison Rose Greenberg and sounds strangely familiar to anyone who's watched any sports movies about agents. And if someone <laughs> in this film screams, show me the money down a phone at any point, I'm switching it off. I'm not going to watch any further. This just sounds like Jenny Maguire with NASCAR. Yeah, it does. Uh, <laughs> and again, you know what? There is a, there's a ready-made audience. Now, one thing though I will say is that the joy of NASCAR is, is not the behind the scenes. It's, it's the race themselves. And yeah, I know you could say the same for Rocky and boxing, but the drama <laughs> in, in, in boxing came from it's not a boxing film. It's a, it's a, yeah. uh, it's a story about redemption. So I, I don't know. With certain sports, they, they work very well with about the discovery of the mystique. That's why baseball works incredibly well. Football, on the other hand, doesn't work. I'm talking about soccer, English football, doesn't yeah. work on the big screen. Works as Ted Lasso because it becomes a... A, a comedy and it becomes a drama, drama about those but certain sports don't make that jump onto in onto sort of cinematic entertainment and there was even you know days of thunder 
isn't that great a movie. So I'm I'm intrigued to see where it goes. Again, I'm not the audience for it, but I do think that certain sports films don't make it that transition into into the storytelling of, 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 a, of a movie. And I'm looking at you, Cricket. The fact that the comedy Talladega Nights is the best NASCAR film to date probably speaks yeah. volumes. <laughs> yeah. Because it poked fun at the whole thing. Uh, and let's round off with some Stephen King news. Uh, oh, we've not had Stephen King news for a while, but Salem's Lot has now secured its lead actor in the guise of Bill Pullman's son, Lewis Pullman, who some of you might remember from Bad Times at the El Royale. And he played the kid behind uh, um, the reception, didn't he? Yes. that he, You might have mistook him at the time for Tom Holland. Because yeah. I know when I started watching it, I was like, is that Tom Holland? No, it's, it's just, it's like Tom Holland on a bad day. He's kind of like, the, <laughs> and also the guy, uh, Dennis Quaidson out of The Boys. He has that kind of affable yeah. feature. Now, I'm surprised at this. Um, I'm not surprised that because uh, he was he was great in that movie. I'm surprised that he's a leading man, and yeah. uh, I just thought he was he was he was uh, he was very good in that movie. But I don't see him as leading man potential. Now I've not seen the film. I've, I've not seen what the producers or the director have seen in him. But I'm just sort of surprised. And, you know, my again, my fan casting would have been Ewan McGregor. I think he would have would have been great in that role. Yeah. But and we said this. It's a Stephen King film, so it's not about the casting. It's about the storytelling. That's why we go and see a Stephen King adaptation. And I am looking forward to Salem's Lot. It is one of my favourite. Are you aware of this series that's just come out in the States called um, Chapel Wait? I'm not, no. It's based on a short story that Stephen King wrote called Jerusalem's Lot, which is set in the mm -hmm. same. You know, there's all this this in, intent that, that Jerusalem's Lot, Salem's Lot, has this sort of yeah. long line of evil. So it's a series that's just come out and it's starring uh, Adrian Brody. I don't think there's a, a UK release to it right now, but it is a it is a kind of prequel to, to Salem's Lot. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what Gary Doberman um, can do because he's penning the script and directing Salem's Lot. I'm intrigued to see how it's going to play with a, a, a younger Ben Mears returning to his hometown of Jerusalem's Lot to seek inspiration for his next book. And finding the vampire community preying on the town. Let's see. I mean, it's 1979 that original TV miniseries slash movie came out. Can you believe I, it's 1979? I do, because I saw it and I was still at school and it, everybody who stayed up to watch it was, was absolutely scared to death. And um, I loved it. And I, and I saw it again probably about 10 or so years ago still holds up and i'm really gagging to watch it one more time mm. uh, it, it does feel like it was a tv series it was done over i think two or three nights potentially but it it, it, it was scary and it held, held up and i'd love to see it again i wish it was on one of the streaming services where you don't have to pay for it but i would yeah. love to watch it one more time and that is the news <laughs> And as we were finishing our usual recording, because we, we never stick to one specific time, we try to get as much done in advance as possible. But then, of course, we have to sometimes report not only good news, but the sad news. And it is sad because even though he lived to the ripe old age of 91, Ed Asner was, in his truest term, an icon, an icon of TV and film. And the hardest thing about Ed Asner is, is where do you choose? Because the man's had such a, a, a fantastic career. Uh, and we just briefly discussed what's our favourite uh, Ed Asner performance. Uh, and, and Andy, I'm going to let you go first because I, I don't know where to start. I really don't. It's, 
it's really, really tricky, this, because I I recognised him on TV through a plethora of ex- appearances that he made throughout the decades. Uh, but, yeah, I'm going to pick one from TV, particularly, and then one from film. On TV, even though he'd been in pretty much every... <laughs> you name any show from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and he was in it. You name any animation of the past 10 years, he's voiced a character in there. But for me, it's the character of August March in Hawaii Five-0 that sticks in my mind, oh, mainly really? because... I remember loving Hawaii Five-0 as a child, uh, watching it like running every weekend on TV. But it was being re- redrawn back to it in the recent series of it, the, re- the reimagining of it, when Ed Asner played that character again. And I recognised right. that character when he came back. I was like, "That's he's playing the same character he played on the original show, even though it had been like three decades since I'd seen the original show. The fact that I recognised him from a one-off appearance in what was a great TV show, let's be honest. But that's how memorable he was in everything that he did, that I could recognise just that one-off appearance so that when he reprised it in a more modern interpretation, it resonated with me and I knew what that character was. Absolutely brilliant on TV. Literally, you will have seen him in at least 50 different things that you've watched over your life, even if you've only been alive for three days. On films, I mean... Where do you start? I mean, there's, there's titles such as The Wrestler, El Dorado, JFK, Hard Rain... There's Elf. I've never been a lover of Elf, but let's be honest, he was great in it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go modern. And it's it's the the rather beloved curmudgeonly voice of Carl Fredrickson from Up. Now, Up is one of my top five Pixar films. In fact, it's probably in my top three. I love the heart of it, and I don't think it would be the same without the voice of Ed Asner, with all of its like it's warm but curmudgeonly aspects to it which make yeah. him so charming. And he's reprised the role for the short animations. And there's the new Doug Days animation, which is landing on Disney+, Plus, which he reprised the role for once again. That, for me, is the film that completely sums up everything about him. Because the character that you see on screen, I can't picture anyone else providing a voice for that character. It seems to match what his personality was in every film that he did. I'm going to have to totally agree. That was my film choice. And there are so many... Great film choices. You mentioned he played Father Christmas or Santa Claus in Elf. JFK, uh, the the amazing They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Yeah. But it is, for me, it's up because I and everything you said, I totally agree with. But for TV, it's probably where I, I'm most... Uh, uh, my first discovery of Ed Asner, and that was in the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then the spin-off of that where he played the, the grumbling, um, curmudgeonly again, but lovable newsman, uh, Lou Grant. So he was very much a comedy performance in the Mary Tyler Moore show. But when he got the spin-off, it was that the start of what we know. And the Mary Tyler Moore productions were fantastic because they would take drama and add comedy. And something now that we do in TV and we see an awful lot, we get we get dramas which have got a great deal of, uh, of comedy to it and, and, and vice versa. And Lou Grant was the first of that. And it was a fantastic series. And I will always, always, I have such a special place for it because I remember my grandmother being a huge fan of Lou Grant and I'd watch it with her. Uh, and for that alone, for that memory alone, it, 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 it just speaks volumes to me. Every time it's on a rerun somewhere, I will watch it. It, it was a marvellous performance and a marvellous actor and will be sadly missed. So hopefully you're having a good time with the film file. And if you are a first time visitor, head over to your favourite podcast platform 
and check out the multitude of episodes and additional episodes that you can find. And hit that subscribe button. And also remember to hit the like button, which will grant you a special key into the secret kingdom. Shh, don't tell everyone. And if you want to know more about the film file, how can you do so? Certainly not by re revealing my secret kingdom to the world. <clears throat> you can head over to Twitter and find us at Filmfile UK. You can head over to Instagram, uh, Filmfile UK. Or you can email us comments, suggestions, reviews, queries, anything. Email us in and we'll give you a shout out. Podcast at filmfile.uk. And remember that Andy and I do this for free. But if you unlock the secret kingdom, I'll sue you. <laughs> Talking of which, have you seen the Nirvana story this week? Yes. Uh, just I know we, we're diverting us... somewhat. Just because as, as a baby, he showed his secret kingdom to the world. You know, it's... <laughs> uh, I've seen some great memes based around it, including, uh, you know, um, certain albums where uh, the the lead art on it is going to sue the band. It's It has become this week's gag. Anyway, moving I mean, it, on. It, it appears that as a baby, he was pictured chasing money and he's still doing it now. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. And strangely enough, I've just realised there is a kind of a link because we are talking about, as part of our deep dive, a rock and roll movie. Now, there are plenty of rock and roll movies, but this one is one of the highlight. Came out in 2000, directed by Cameron Crowe, starred Billy Crudup, Francis McDormand, Kate Hudson and Patrick Fugit. And we are, of course, talking about Almost Famous. Going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock stars. From Cameron Crowe, this is Rolling Stone. We need this story in four days. The creator of Jerry Maguire. I've never written more than a few pages in my life. A story for everyone. How old are you? I'm 15. Who wanted to join the party? No, 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 no. Yes. And one guy. Do you want to come? Oh. Who did? Rock stars have kidnapped my son. You're one of us. Almost famous. Directed and written by Cameron Crowe. This is a, well, a semi-autobiographical tale of the young Crowe, who was a teenage writer for Rolling Stone uh, magazine. And it's based on his experiences touring with rock bands such as the Allman Brothers, Led Zeppelin, the Eagles, Linda Skinner, etc. But for this, he's fictionalised it. And it tells the story of a teenage journalist who, strangely enough, writes for Rolling Stone in the early 70s touring with the fictitious rock band Stillwater and his efforts to get a cover story as well as falling in love with the team, with the rock groupie Penny Lane played beautifully by Kate Hudson. Um, I saw this in the States and didn't know much about it. And this was, I think, about six months before it got released in the UK. I was aware of Cameron Crowe's work and I and I love his his dialogue and I love his, his, his very easygoing storytelling style. And being a rock musician myself and, and a fan of music, this film hit, pun intended, a chord. It's a beautifully constructed story of what we think rock and roll is all about. And, and a, and a time capsule to a certain period of music when rock music actually ruled the world. Hard to believe these days. So Crow used a composite of his own life uh, and his own experiences and captures that love affair that you have with music from an early age. 
And while it is a rose-tinted approach to, to the music industry, it's absolutely beautifully told, beautifully directed, and incredibly, incredibly touching. And is a love letter, not only to a period, but to rock and roll in particular. Absolutely think it's a fabulous movie. And I'm not alone in that because quite recently, the BBC put it in their top 100 of great films of, of all time. And a little bit earlier, we talked about how sport doesn't always make it onto the big screen intact. I think to some extent, the music industry doesn't always sell on the big screen. And there are some films that fall by the wayside. I'm looking at you, Detroit Rock City, for instance, which is not bad. But there are others which absolutely shine like this, like films like Hard Day's Night, where you are invested in the music and the people around it. Andy, you've only watched this recently. I've always had a love affair with this film, but coming to it fresh, I'm interested to know what you think about it. Uh, this is one of the films that's been sat on my why have I not watched this Oscar-nominated film yet list for quite some time. And so when you suggested that we'd have this as a deep dive, it gave me a chance to get around to exploring it. And I found it this week. It is playing at the moment. You can You can find it on Sky Movies. That's where I caught it this week but it regularly crops up on other streaming services and i, I enjoy i'll say straight out that i enjoyed it it's definitely a four out of five film it's not a perfect film for me it didn't quite grab me completely i think maybe it's a case of one of them that has been hyped up so much by people throughout the years with that oh my god i can't believe you've not watched this that maybe my expectations were a little too high but there's a lot of positives in this and the biggest positives is that cast that yes. cast is amazing jason lee was on a career high at the time and he's at the peak of his career and he's at the peak of his abilities on screen billy crudup is mesmerizingly engaging kate hudson is an evocative bubble of positive energy throughout the film uh, patrick fugit in the lead role as william is endearingly nervous and plays it so convincingly. Everyone is so well-placed. Then you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman playing, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He plays the same character in every film that he ever made, and we <laughs> loved him for it. And Frances McDormand, who, as the overprotective mother, who initially you think, oh, I'm going to hate her. But then you grow to like her overprotective nature and how she creeps people out over the phone with her little uh, lectures on how they need to live their life. and. You know, she's a character who truly grows over the film towards the end when she's interacting with members of the band and you're just like, oh, I love this character. I want to watch more with this person. That's not even to mention the support cast of Anna Paquin, Zoe Deschanel, Jay Baruchel, Rain Wilson. The list is endless of all the faces that you'll recognize in this film and the all given a reason to be in the film. There's no one in there for unnecessary reasons. No, there, no one there is padding. Everyone has a moment to shine. Even the quiet drummer throughout the whole film has a single line of dialogue during a, a, a plane flight that's going wrong that breaks all the tension and is one of the highlight laugh out loud moments when everything goes right afterwards and he realizes what he's just revealed to the world. Brilliant filmmaking. Um, it's like you say, it, it, Cameron Crowe's approach to storytelling is not like it, he doesn't force things. He lets things naturally flow. Yeah, you can he say that with pace. singles and Jerry Maguire as well. Yeah, yeah, he lets things pace and he, he lets the characters play and he lets them, you know, lets the heart build up between them. Let's just start to care about them. And I'll have to say that I was engaged 
to this film for the majority. But towards the end, it started to slump a little for me. And I think the over two hours runtime overplayed some of the moments a slight bit. I found amusement and heart throughout the film and definitely rate it strongly, but I just felt that it was maybe a bit too long. I, I might have to agree with you because I've not gone back and revisited. I was, I've been very tempted at knowing that we were going to do this, but I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking it's a film that I've seen many, many times and have a, clearly have a love for. However, I think the last time I saw it was probably about, about 10 years ago and I saw the bootleg cut, which I'll talk about in a moment. And I and I think that going back to it, I I do think it's slightly overlong. I think it it's, it verges on the edge of outstaying its welcome. Mm-hmm. Now I've I I think everything about it is well done. I think it does portray the rock industry through rose tinted glasses. However, you are seeing the rock industry through the eyes of of a teenage kid who is enamoured by it, and and I get that. I get that you see everything in a golden light when we, we do it the same with movies. Uh, we do it the same with anything that we're interested in. We we see it in, a, in, in the way that we want it to be, not that it, it really is. So uh, that was a critique that was thrown at it a lot, that it's this, this, this too pure version of, of the rock and roll industry. But it does have one thing going for it, and it does have heart. Yes, slightly outstays its welcome. I, I will agree with that. And I'm and that's why I've not gone back and rewatched it prior to this. I I don't want to taint it and become more cynical about it. What I uh, what was interesting is there is a, a longer cut of this, a director's cut. It was known as the bootleg cut, and uh, there are some great scenes into it that again add a little bit more depth to it, but only work as a director's cut and 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 don't take away anything from that, apart from one of the extras on it. So. When they were making this, of course, they had to get the rights to, to lots of songs. And, and Stillwater became a band that was, was based around references to, to bands like Led Zeppelin. And of course, there's a, a, there was a sequence in the film in which Led Zeppelin were to have their song Stairway to Heaven played. Now, Crow took a copy of the film to London for a screening with, with the remaining band members. Uh, and Zeppelin granted Crow the rights to use one of their songs on the soundtrack. However, they wouldn't grant the right for Stairways to Heaven. So if you do watch the, the bootleg edition, the DVD, there's a, a, an extra where they sit around listening to Stairway to Heaven as, as uh, Patrick Fugit's character tries to convince his mom that rock is poetry and that it's art. And there's a, a countdown as to when you can hit the play button on your copy of <laughs> Stairway to Heaven. So they, they tie into it, which is very <laughs> cute. But while the bootleg does offer some more insight into the characters. It's not the it's not the essential version that you have to see. The the cinematic version it is is darn near perfect. But I, I'm going to go with the fight, as you said, that it, it is slightly slightly too long. Yeah, I mean, with that with the star cast in there and the general energy and spirit of the film, it is extremely hard to dislike anything within here. Even when it felt like it was dragging. I was still caught up with the characters. I was still following it and I wasn't getting bored with it. I just felt that could have been paced a bit better. Uh, but it's this is certainly a film that I intend to revisit at some point because maybe, like I said at the start of me talking before, it's the high praise that I've heard of it that made me a bit more cynical watching it this time because I was expecting magnificence and it wasn't quite magnificent. It might be a film that reevaluates and goes higher in rating for me. And Fresh Eyes may well, very well serve it well. But I enjoyed it. And if you've not seen it yourself, follow my follow my 
whole trend of finding these films that you've not seen, that you've always put off, and get them watched because they can be quite eye-opening to realise what you've missed. It's a bit like an album. Not every track works on it. Mm. But when you get back and you get to the end, there's a real pleasure to it. And it's funny and it's touching and it's uh, it's crafted and it's heartwarming. And ultimately, it's it's successful and it draws you in. And as it fades out on the last track, you'll, you'll put it back in, in its sleeve, put it back into your record collection with the knowledge that you'll play it again. And you can find Almost Famous available on Disney+. And on to the reviews. And... We've got a review this week that we've both seen, which makes up for last week. <laughs> Andy and I both had a chance to see the new version of Candyman, directed by Nia DaCosta. It was only a matter of time before Candyman he came back here. A story like that, a pain like that, lasts forever. This neighborhood got stained over and over. Say his name five times in a mirror. See what happens. Candyman will live forever. So Candyman, the story of artist Anthony, played by Yahar Abdul-Mateen II, and his partner Brianna, played by Tiona Paris, who now live in the now gentrified Cabrina Green in Chicago, the setting of the first Candyman film. And after learning the true story behind the local urban legend of Candyman, he decides to display it as a new art piece. And by doing so, Anthony unknowingly opens a door through which the horrors of the past return. So you don't need to have seen for this the 1992 Bernard Rose original to enjoy Nia DaCosta's reboot she co-wrote and produced with Jordan Peele. In fact, to some extent, I think you might find that by not having seen it, you will find something new in it because this is a film about legend and about urban legend. And there's enough explained within this movie to give you an insight and for it to become its own thing. And that's what worked about it. Instead of it being a reboot, let's say, let's take Halloween, for instance, which I've got nothing against. This stands alone as a part of an exploration of mythology and also gives something to say and some credence to world matters and to some extent because of the nature of, of what's been happening in the world this would have played out incredibly well last year during black lives matter uh, movement that was happening in the states it's a beautiful dark film that's brilliantly shot and drowned in in lots of lots of social commentary and art but yet is still a horror movie and i say that because a lot of a lot of times you get sort of very arty approaches to horror movies. The directors say, no, no, it's a psychological thriller and misses the fact that it's a, it's a horror movie. This is, at its heart, still a horror movie and it's still scary and still has some great, as one would expect, some great death scenes. Andy, uh, we saw this together. We didn't really talk much about it afterwards. Um, I think we both praised it, but I, th I think we had you have to live with it a little bit to, to, to see this through. Do you agree? Yes, very much agree. Um, I, what, I got home after this and I was thinking about it and started typing up some notes on so what my initial thoughts were. And I initially scored it like a four out of five, but it's actually gone up to a four and a half out of five for me. Now, 
to just set my stall out here, the 1992 film is one of those horror films that has stayed with me ever since I first saw it on release on the big screen. It's one of my favourite horror films of all time. I think that the pacing in it, the style, the approach, the urban legends inspired tale, but also the social commentary that it used at the time about how the ghettos and the projects like cultivated this fear and hysteria those kind of themes worked and it's a film that I've gone back to and revisited and even the two sequels that went straight to home release I've got a lot of love for I think that there's a lot that can be explored in the urban myth setting of the Candyman universe and so watching this film it delivered exactly what I wanted a Candyman film to deliver right. you mentioned how how it was shot you've mentioned the direction and like the style and immediately at the start of the film the presentation threw me off kilter the studio logos were back to front which, you know, working with the cinema, I was watching that coming up thinking, has we got a dodgy DC I, 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 was, I thought wrong. exactly the same. <laughs> I thought, oh no, what's wrong with this print? And it was only when the third logo, which was the Bron logo, was on backwards. I was like, oh, we're looking at it in a mirror. Of course we are. And that, that's when it dawned on me. It was like, that's a deliberate style choice to throw you off guard. And then the opening credits are sh- a shot with a look up towards a city skyline as like you're moving through it with the the, the high skyscrapers going up into clouds. But it's shown from a point of view that we don't normally see. As in, if you tilt your head three quarters of the way backwards, so you're looking behind you and up. And that was very unnerving. And that was unsettling. Yes. And from that point onwards, the film just continued to build on making you feel off guard at all times, be it from the visual choices of where the place in the camera you don't necessarily see all the gory horror play out, but you see the effects of it and you see the impact and you you fill the gaps in in your head. To the background noises, and this is a film that uses background noises and music stylings in the same way that J-horror films use strange, unnatural, disturbing noises. Or, if you're a fan of video games, the Silent Hill series never feels orchestral, never has a cello telling you when to jump, but instead has strange, disturbing presences around you at all times. And that played with my head whilst the story played out. The story itself is somewhat predictable and a tad formulaic, but that's the point. This is a retelling of an urban myth, and it's an exploration of how urban myths evolve over time and that each community in each era will redefine a basic myth to tell it for a more modern setting and create a new modern fearful character to follow through. And it plays perfectly with the Candyman setting. Yeah, I mean, we we don't get we don't get a retread of, of the Tony Todd version. Um, what we get is an exploration of mythos, and we get an exploration of some very very important themes, as as what you would expect from from the production team behind this. You know, it says specifically something about black art. It talks about regeneration of of the ghettos and and who can afford to live there. The way that that white critics, for instance, are, are become the white gatekeepers for, for for black art, and so it is a celebration of, of the artist. And sometimes this has hit home. It's sometimes nailed on onto it. It's it's very very obvious, and maybe it ought to be because while what it lacks in that subtlety, maybe it is a good idea. And and it made me think about that an awful lot at first while watching the film. I thought this is a really heavy handed approach to be able to to talk about that. Uh, but the political commentary maybe this time needed to be be hammered home because there are an awful lot of people who seem to be missing it and, and talking of gentrification. And, and I think that's who it's aimed at. Social commentary was always a part of, of certainly the first 
and the second Candyman. I, I I never saw the third one. So there is a lot of of outright explanation, but I think perhaps that political commentary needed to be said rather than hinted at because we're living in, in overt times where, you know, if it's not said on Twitter, then it needs to be it needs to be nailed in. At first that took something away from the film for me, but the more I lived with it, the more I thought about it. It's an, it's an important part of what that story is, uh, and as, as well as the idea of what urban legend is and what urban legend becomes, and the fact that a lot of the enemies of Candyman turned out to be white people. So the, the uh, art critics, for instance, and uh, white bourgeoisie gatekeepers, and, and interestingly enough, without giving anything away, because I've just watched the trailer again and there is a hint of it, white policemen. Mm-hmm. So it is a film of now. And um, when we talked about earlier that when you remake a film, why it's important, it has to say something about the world that we live in. And this film certainly does that through the prism of it being a Candyman film and a horror movie. The casting of Yaha Abdul-Mateen II is is the critical thing in this. Is he's, he's our attention throughout the film. And his rise to prominence in the industry over recent years is given another boost with this role. He is engaging. He is well-placed and he holds your attention throughout. As he starts to descend into the Candyman mythos and starts to become part of the fear cycle himself, you feel him slipping away from reality. And he's ably supported by a range of cast. His journey plays out deftly over a short but perfectly placed 90 minutes. And the film takes that time beautifully to deconstruct urban myths do a political message and uses the power of suggestive redesign of legends not wasting any moments working well as a sequel to the original but as you said at the head of this a new entry for people who aren't familiar with the Candyman series the end credits I need to mention those end credits once the end credits play out no one leaves their seat and I was watching audiences last night on our evening shows, who sat there through the whole end credits watching them. Because what you initially think is just going to be a cute little paper animate, paper puppet animation of the events of the film turns out to be something a lot more powerful and shows you the history of every urban take, every urban myth version of Candyman that there could have been. It's powerful, it's moving, and it's it's one of the freshest horrors that I've seen in years. I just want to point out how great Tayona Paris is. We saw her in WandaVision, yes. uh, and she does a lot of heavy lifting in this film as as uh, Anthony's partner, Brianna, uh, and she deals, and how she deals with his descent into madness and provides a, a counterpoint to the narrative and also a counterpoint to talking about art and art history as well. I'm looking forward to seeing her again, teaming up with uh, near DeCosta, on, of course, with Marvels, which is already in production. And and you and I have just had a little bit of a bugbear about this. Um, a part of the marketing has sort of really bla- downplayed DeCosta's role in this. Yes, it. Th- this is something that has annoyed me throughout the past few decades on certain films. The, the director, the true creator of a film, gets overlooked in order to sell the film on the name of a famous producer. We've seen it with Steven Spielberg Presents films when the director's name is nowhere prominent on the poster. It's buried somewhere down. We saw it when Quentin Tarantino like presents Hero. He had nothing to do with the making of that film. He just bought the rights to distribute it on the West. 
but his name was all over the post and people were like, oh, this is different for a Quentin Tarantino film. It's not. And now we've got it with this. So many people are flocking to see Jordan Peele's Candyman. It's not Jordan Peele's Candyman. Yes, he helped co-write it. And yes, he's a producer, but this is Nia DaCosta's film. If you are expecting a Jordan Peele film, prepare to be disappointed because she doesn't make films the same way that Jordan Peele does. She might tackle similar themes, but her style and approach is completely different. And it's I think it's disgraceful and abhorrent that a director is being sidelined just because of the person behind the scenes who's got a famous famous film out. And she's such a visionary director. Of course, that's why Marvel signed her for the Captain Marvel sequel. Yeah, I think we both agree Candyman is a beautiful, cinematic and interesting take on horror legend and definitely, definitely is a must-see out this week. Andy, anything else for reviews? So I've also seen The Vault. Uh, the Vault landed on Amazon this week, and me and you are both, I both said a few times that we're fans of heist movies, and we're just waiting for a good heist movie to come along because there's not really been a really solid one, maybe since Ocean's Eleven. Right. But The Vault sees Freddie Highmore as a young, gifted engineer who hasn't quite found the opportunity of a lifetime yet until one arises when he's recruited to crack an impenetrable vault to retrieve a legendary lost treasure that the salvage crew who'd found it had taken from them by Spanish officials in this momentarily thrilling heist flick. <laughs> I'm the owner of a salvage business, and I have a job offer. I want you to help me break into the most secure vault in the world. <laughs> okay, very good. Do you know who Francis Drake was? He stole the Spanish treasure. And that's what's in the bag? Untold wealth. You probably need a safe cracker. I'm an engineer. I need your mind. Where others see an impossible task, you might see a solution. The war room. Meet the team. A computer with acquisition, planning, and extraction. Meet one of the world's brightest minds. He's going to mastermind the infiltration. The vault, what it is, how it works, we can't work it out. No one has. And if we get caught, we're going down for a very long time. Are you sure you're prepared for that? Are you? I want to get the positive out of the way first. Let's do the positive first. The heist itself is tense. It's well planned through. It's a nail-biting moment. It pushes all the cliches that we're accustomed to, but uses them effectively enough to keep the tension mounting and building and keep the pressure of how much time they've got to get this heist pulled off before. Well, the backdrop is the World Cup and Spain reaching the final. So the crowds in the streets outside where this vault is are causing the distraction necessary to get the job done. A bit like the Italian job. Yeah. So they have to get it finished before the end of the match. So it... It does that element right, but then you get to the negatives. And unfortunately, the negative is pretty much everything else in the film. The setup is meandering and seems somewhat mundane. It takes up almost two-thirds of the two-hour runtime unnecessarily. And the cast have zero chemistry. That's interesting. I quite like Freddie Highman, so I'm hopefully going to say something good about him. Well, Freddie Highmore just feels uncomfortable throughout. He doesn't feel well-placed in this role at all. And I've generally got a good like a vibe from him. I thought that he was marvellous as um, in, in the TV series uh, Bates Motel. Absolutely yes. chillingly menacing. And everything that I've seen him in, he's always at least come across engaging. But in this, he just seems misplaced, uh, bored, and he lacks any chemistry with uh, any of the cast, including Lorraine, who's played by Astrid Burgess Frisbee, who 
there's supposed to be some burgeoning potential romance or sizzling under the surface. But the only reason that you know that is that there's a point where she's going through his sketches of plans and um, safes and all that, and she finds a sketched photo, a sketched picture of herself, and you go, oh. Apparently that means he's got a thing for her, and that's it. That's the only attempt to show that there's any link between them. It just all feels forced in because you know you need to have the trope of like the they have a an attraction between each other. Nothing engages in this film until the actual heist itself, and so the first hour of it is an absolute chore to sit through. As a result, it's decidedly average overall as a heist movie. That it makes the mistake, and this happens so much in films that know that they are homaging and referencing things, that it actually mentions the film that it's trying to homage and reference. Within the first 10 minutes, there's a line where Highmore's character says, who do you think I am, Danny Ocean? And at that point, you go, no, you're not, because that's a much better film. And now you are now you set the standard that you're trying to live up to, and you're not going to get anywhere near it. In doing so, it just serves to remind you how great Ocean's Eleven is, and it made me want to watch Ocean's Eleven, which I'm probably going to watch later today now as a result. So well done. You've managed to successfully get me to watch the Ocean's films again. I'm a big fan of heist movies. I love the, um, even down to the Rick and Morty episode of pulling the gang together. <laughs> to do a heist. And I don't think you can really do that without referencing Rick and Morty anymore. Um, So that's disappointing to hear. What we have both watched, and Andy talked about it last week, is Marvel's What If. And we are now on to our third episode, which is familiar territory for those of us who remember the offshoot comic, Nick Fury's Big Week. That's the moment. It created a whole new hero. That's weird. Reality is not a straight line. Well, that doesn't sound ominous at all. Every passing moment is a chance for a new offshoot, a new variation. Space. Time. Reality. What if we could rebuild it? Oh, I'm counting on it. Journey to face the unknown and ponder the question. What if? Andy, uh, go first, because I'm going to try and mention my thoughts on on last week's. But did you enjoy it? Did you have a blast with uh, with Fury's Big Week? Yeah, like you say, I mean, the previous episodes so far have run very close to the film. So whilst this one does run close to the films, it was hugely inspired by Fury's Big Week offshot, like one shot comic that I absolutely loved. For those who don't know what Fury's Big Week was, the first batch of films on the lead up to Avengers Nobody quite knew the time frame between them and how they all interlinked. And Fury's Big Week showed that all the events of the first Thor film, the second Iron Man film and uh, the Incredible Hulk all happened in the same week for Nick Fury. He had a bad week, but in doing so, it brought his whole idea of the Avengers together. And this what if? Whilst you could watch it and go, that's a bit from that film, that's a bit from that film. For those of us who read the comics, we were like, this is this is what he was doing. This is great. We love this. And I love the fact that they're tying into the comic series there. Um, it explored the darker aspect of, in this universe, someone has been working to remove all metahumans from existence for some reason, which prevent, which prevent the age of heroes from starting. And Fury and Widow are desperately trying to work out who's behind it. We as the audience are obviously going to believe that it's Hydra because we know that Hydra was behind everything to start off with. But 
our expectations might be shattered by the reveal. It was a, a cute little twist ride at the end. I don't want to give it away because uh, yeah. some people still might not have seen it, but it was a, it was a neat twist. Uh, the intrigue played well. The humour lands nicely. And it was marvellous to hear um, Coulson back on form with his little snappy lines. And when he reveals his password to log onto the secure systems, I had to pause it because I was laughing and missing everything that was happening. Um, it, it's great. It was it was had the energy of those early Marvel films and it had the humour of those early Marvel films, whilst also showing a darker universe that, that was playing out. We, we've got to talk about this series for the animation. The animation is absolutely beautiful. I mean, uh, I spoke about it on, on the first outing. And I, and I like the fact that, that it almost opens up for potential sequels in, in the What If world about yeah. what's going to happen after this and, and especially what we could have done with, with the second episode. So I'm going to briefly talk about my thoughts on the second episode. So the first one, which we both thoroughly enjoyed, was it was a good old romp but it did have more or less the same beats as Captain America. Um, it wasn't almost a retelling of Captain America First Avenger, but with now the Captain Britain uh, version of, of events. But more or less, it played out the same. And I thought what, what they did well with episode two is that they took the idea and just created something entirely differently. And by turning to Chalo into what is a good man and what a good man can change no matter where he is and almost like a robin hood character he he could change the world around him and that felt a bigger what if and certainly took away from just doing the marvel universe and just seeing it through a different prism and uh and, and just altering it so I, th I i thought it really started to hit home with with the second episode of what can be done with this series and it was also bittersweet to to hear the, the late Chadwick Boseman say those lines and not get to see a potential sequel about his his ravages and, and being a, a guardian of the galaxy. This one I enjoyed slightly less than episode two. I think episode two, two has been the standout for the reasons that I've just said, but it did give another insight, another way of telling and showing a little bit more depth about the Marvel Universe. And uh, I'm gagging for next week. They are just long enough to to enjoy uh, and they don't outstay their welcome so you don't have to think about them too much and uh, as i said though it's great to hear some of the voice casting back and it's great to see such beautiful animation on tv and i'm intrigued for next week's episode do we know what that is yet it's a doctor strange focused episode so potentially i think we've got a doctor strange episode next week but i am certainly in also coming up this next week so over on cinemas well Let's stick with Marvel because Shang-Chi, like we've already said, is finally upon us. Yes, the proper first outing for the next phase of the MCU is here. And the initial buzz is very, very exciting. We will definitely be watching this and reporting back next week on the show. Um, here today sees Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish starring a dementia-focused tale about an artist who's slowly, slowly slipping into the early stages of dementia. And Annette, with Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard, uh, sees Henry, a stand-up comedian with a fierce sense of humour, falling in love with Anne. And they form a passionate and glamorous couple. And at the birth of their first child, a mysterious little girl with an exceptional destiny, their lives are turned upside down. Over on streaming, Worth is a political biopic with the ever-excellent Michael Keaton playing a lawyer seeking justice for the victims of 9-11. Drawing from true story of the times... 
Um, it looks like a powerful and quite moving biopic approach. And sticking with biopics, now this is an old biopic from 1992, but it's one that I've not seen yet, and I'm sure I'm going to get frowned at for saying that I've not seen it, and it's Malcolm <laughs> X. Lands on Netflix this week. Powerful biopic from Spike Lee about the controversial figure. It is worth seeing. It's going to get ticked off my list this week. Over on Amazon, the new interpretation of Cinderella from Pitch Perfect writer Kay Cannon, which updates the classic story for a modern twist. And also, we spoke about it last week. Young Frankenstein lands on Amazon streaming this week. So when we said last week, you'll have to buy it or you'll have to rent it. Just give it a few more days. You'll be able to watch and see what we love about this film. So it sounds like there's something for everybody. And that's about it for this week. But as usual, before we go, we give you our neat thing. Even when I'm on holiday, I still manage to get back to do a neat thing. Andy traditionally goes first. So Andy, if you're not stealing mine, please go first. Well, I, this is going <laughs> to sound very, like, very deja vu this week uh, because I'm sticking with comics again. And I'm sticking with Fantastic Four again. Now, last week, you'll know that I raved on about how Dan Slott's bringing the Fantastic Four back to the magic essence that it always was, the cosmic brilliance, the family drama. Well, on a complete sidetrack, um, I've now started reading Fantastic Four Life Story. About a year ago, I raved on about Spider-Man Life Story, which was the Chip Zdarsky retelling of Spider-Man's life if he was a teenager in the 60s and then going through the decades, people within the Marvel Universe actually grew old. And it was a great way to re-explore all those iconic moments throughout their time from a more realistic point of view. Well, Fantastic Four Life Story does a similar approach and it starts in the 60s. The first ish volume is for the 60s. The next one will be the 70s, 80s. And it's retelling the Fantastic Four story but without the cosmic elements, without them without them necessarily being the, the perfectly structured family unit who support each other, but being a bit more dysfunctional and ageing as they go along. The first volume has teased the coming of Galactus because Reed has had a vision of him and he's become quite obsessed with this cosmic entity that is going to destroy everything. And there's enough intrigue in there and there's enough tension between the actual team who in this one, Ben and Reed are not best friends. And so there's a okay. lot of underlying tension and antagonism between the pair who are forced to work together as this superhero team because that's what the public expect. So it's taking a very different approach to Fantastic Four. And much like the What If series that we harp on about so much and what we love so much, these life story ones give an alternate timeline viewpoint of classic characters seen through a different lens. I, love, I loved the Spider-Man life story. I'm loving Fantastic Four life story so far, even though it's so different to the characters that I've grown with. And I'm hoping that they continue to do these every, every year, do a different focus on a different character with their life story. Let's see a Daredevil life story where he's aging. Let's see, a, I don't know, Ghost Rider. <laughs> Does Ghost Rider age? Who knows? Um, but they are great, interesting takes. That's Fantastic Four life story. If you've got Marvel Unlimited, issue one's on there. If you want to, Catch it normally. I think it's up to issue three on the shelves at the moment. Excellent. I, I did get the Spider-Man one. I thought it was a great read. Big fan of Chip Zdarsky uh, and just thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and it's, Zdarsky is again, possibly it's, the best writer in Marvel at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's Daredevil, which we talked about, is 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 fantastic. So, yeah, I'll be giving that a shot. I'll probably wait till the collected edition and, and get it that way. But, yes, I am in for that one. Um, my neat thing this week is, well, it's, it's going round at the moment that it is the kind of 
must-see cult TV that's happening right now. Netflix series, brand new cherry flavour. So uh, a filmmaker, a young filmmaker, heads to Hollywood in the early 90s to make her movie and ends up tumbling down this hallucinatory uh, rabbit hole of revenge, sex, magic, and even more importantly, kittens. Yes, kittens. I know you didn't think kittens were scary. You've not seen brand new cherry flavor. It stars Rosa Salaza, who you remember from a teal of Battle Angel, I think. Catherine Keener and Eric Lange as probably the most vile film producer you've seen since what? Well, True Romance. This is about as dark as you can get for a, a horror series. And it really, really, really is a horror series. It's intense. It's incredibly surreal. Grabs your attention, grabs you by the throat, and just doesn't let go. It's gory, as, as a good horror series should be. It's completely over the top. And there's, there's an intricacy as well as the characters weave in and out of, of the storyline to produce ultimately a, a very fulfilling Netflix miniseries. And it's doing so well and really is uh, building up um, a reputation that it looks like there's going to be a second season. It kind of has a David Cronenberg feel to it. So there's lots of sort of body horror going off on it. A Stuart Gordon. Do you remember the film Society, Andy? Yes. Yes, very much Elements so. of that to it as well. It kind of perfectly, pitch perfectly, captures uh, the 80s and 90s Hollywood scene uh, when directors could come out of absolutely nowhere and, and make big movies. It's, it's a really interesting watch. I've not loved it as much as a lot of people have, and I think it's a real sort of Marmite series. You either mm. think it's incredible and fantastic or you're completely put off by it. But that's what makes it absolutely unique. Now, I've mentioned before, I don't often binge a series, but this I certainly, certainly binge because once you've seen one episode and you've taken a break, you've got to get straight back into it really well done so my neat thing for this week is an enter at your own risk brand new cherry flavor and that's it for this week's film file we'll be back again next week and as ever it's always a pleasure to bring you the show and it's always a pleasure to be back working with my partner in crime it's it, it certainly you. brought the energy back this week it's been great glad to have you back with me <laughs> it's good to be back uh, we'll see you again next week but in the meantime Listen to Tommy with a candle burning and you will see your entire future.